Please rise for the reading of God, verses 14 through 17. Hear now God's word. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, that from, that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And thus far the reading of God's Word and all God's people said. Amen. The last two sermons uh, in this series, which is titled The Place of Word and Sacrament, in, that, I, in those sermons I sought to address the problem problems and the temptations of syncretism or the watering down of the Christian faith with alien philosophies. Things that seek to undermine the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. The siren call of the world to come their way. Well, like Odysseus, who had his men block their ears with wax so that they'd be unable to hear the alluring song of the seductive sirens, and who ordered his sailors to tie him to the mast so he would not jump into the sea or crash the ship in an attempt to meet the sirens, we too must plug our ears and lash ourselves to the church with the word and the sacrament. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We have denied ourselves, taken up our cross, and now we follow him wherever he leads. This is simply the most basic confession of a Christian. This is who we are. And we must, as our text says, continue in the things which we have learned and been assured of. Central to following Christ is a self-conscious Allegiance to his word. Lord, what would you have me to do? Tell me, and I'll do it. How do you want me to respond in this situation? How do you want me to think? How do you want me to see this? What should my attitude be? What should, what should my perspective be? Tell me, so I will know how to follow you. John eight thirty through 32 and he spoke these words, Jesus Many believed in him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And in John 15, he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask whatever you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so you will be my disciples. To be a disciple is to be a student. To be a student is to sit under the word of the teacher. I wonder how many of us even hear these words, much less take them to, take them to heart, or have very concrete things that we do daily to implement this. And then when we don't, we wonder why we are so ill-equipped to live, to deal with life's challenges. Could it be? That we are ignoring the remedy that God has given us. 
The first three foundational questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you know them. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule, the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. What do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. That summarizes it. It's surprising how few Christians understand these most basic principles of the Christian faith. When I taught systematic theology at a Christian school a number of years ago, my main objective was to ensure that every student, if they didn't learn anything else, they learned that the Bible was the only authoritative and sufficient source for life. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 14-16, Do all things... Or just, I, may have, I just realized I think I'm going to preach a separate sermon on this one. Do all things without complaining. But we'll save that for another day. And disputing. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights. What makes you shine as lights in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation? The next phrase, holding fast the word of life. That's what makes you shine. That's what makes you distinct and different. So that I, Paul, may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And again, Paul admonishes us in these very practical terms in Titus chapter 2. But as for you, Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober and reverent and temperate and sound in faith and love and patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior. Very practical living stuff right here. Not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. Why? All these instructions to men and women, older, younger, that the word of God may not be blasphemed, spoken ill of. You represent the word of God. At the very heart of every sin is the, is the answer to the question asked by the serpent in the garden. Half God said. Jesus responded to Satan's temptation by quoting the word of God. Man lives not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. David writes in Psalm 119 in asking, answering this question, How can a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid my heart, that I might not sin against you. You see, every person has an ultimate authority. It will either be God's word or man's word, but one or the other will have the last word. Whoever has the last word, that is your ultimate authority. That's your God. And so, the central lesson of the Bible, of, of, excuse me, of biblical Christianity, is that the Bible is sufficient for all of life. It is necessary and sufficient. 
In the beginning was the Word. John 1. That says it all. Paul explains in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the Word of God's message, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. It's magic. It's real magic. It's a mystery. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word. Just hearing God's Word does its work in us. The Word of God does something that the words of men cannot do. It performs a work in those who believe. Because man is not sufficient, he's not self-sufficient, rather he is a dependent creature. The Bible was given to help men come to saving faith in Christ, but also to transform them into the image of, of Christ. And so the Holy Spirit uses, uses it as an adequate instrument. He says it has the power to do so. John fourteen twenty two. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. And again in Matthew 7, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and you know the rest of that passage. So we want to speak about the all-sufficiency of Scripture. First came evangelism. The sacred writings, he says to Timothy, were able to make you wise unto salvation. That is foundational to survival. Second, the Scriptures are useful for righteous living. We're called to love God. We're called to love our neighbors. But how? Where do we find out how to love God and how to love our neighbors? Only the Word of God could teach us how to do that. The counsel of the Bible is, for those who actually receive it for what it is, the Word of God, and it's all about changing lives uh, by changing values and beliefs and our thinking, giving us a new way of looking at the world, new relationships, new attitudes, behavior, changes everything. What other source could possibly provide a standard for such changes. From the beginning, the Word of God was necessary. Man does not live, as we already heard, by bread alone. Life requires a word from the mouth of God. And without that word, man has no personal ability, no matter how smart he thinks he is, to understand and to make sense, to make sense out of or to know how to live in the world. He doesn't know how to live with others, can't properly relate to God. Without God's word, misery follows. You don't have to look very far to see that, do you? It's crucial to grasp the fact that man was created in such a way that for his own good and God's glory, it was necessary to depend upon divine counsel and to be changed by it. The Bible tells us that God has rejected the wisdom of the world. 
He calls his people to, be, to a special wisdom of his own that is sharply at odds with the world's values. Any other foundation must be rejected. They are not needed because the Bible is sufficient and adequate. It is the unique word. The words of men cannot compete with the word of God. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. This was the central question in the Garden of Eden. Whose word would rule the lives of men? Neither does God bless disobedience to his word by those who profess to be his followers. Distrust in God's way has been promoted by several rival systems offering different counsel and claiming to open men's eyes one way or another. It's all over. It's, it's everywhere all the time. It's been that way from the beginning. Supplementing the word of God, since they think it is insufficient, offering a life of self-help and autonomy, we are so easily deceived like Adam and Eve, into accepting pagan thought and practice when we don't think biblically. When the church borrows from God's competitors, and she can't help but bring the cockroaches into the house as well. Thus saith the Lord. We don't have in the Bible helpful suggestions. Rather, we have the authoritative Commands and laws and precepts and decrees and the very oracles of God. This is God whose very word brought everything into existence out of nothing. Let there be light and there was light. That's how powerful it is. And thus I stand here today as a minister, a servant of the word of God. And I say, as Paul said, we must bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. As Abraham Kuyper Kuyper said, the goal must be to populate the world of the human heart with different ideas and conceptions. We must heed the warning of God in Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewn out themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Believers are to stand for God's wisdom and against false teaching. Of course, they have to be able to recognize it before they can do that. Even under the most difficult challenges. We're called to make an application of the scriptures to our own personal lives and to the culture. It's both inward and outward. We are specifically warned to avoid the counsel of the ungodly. Jesus condemned the Pharisees and the Sadducees for not understanding the scriptures and applying them to their times. It's not enough to know your Bible and to you know, be able to win at Bible trivia. You should know your Bible and hopefully win at Bible trivia. But it must go beyond that. That was the problem with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They could quote it, but they had not internalized it. They had not, it was not directing them. They missed the point. And so Jesus says in Matthew 16, And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. 
Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you can't discern the signs of the times. And Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. And so, for the last little part of this sermon and next week, I want us to start examining these four things. uh, The inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, the authority and scope of Scripture, the usefulness of Scripture, and the sufficiency of Scripture. I'd say we won't cover all of that today, but just to, to get us started here. The inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. Critical. If it's not inspired, if it's not inerrant, then how could it be authoritative? How could, it, how could we be certain? So how did the world, for example, survive before the arrival of modern psychology? How did we answer questions about man's relationship with God and his neighbor? Was the church simply stuck in the evolutionary stone age, hopeless and helpless? Did God withhold truth for righteous living until our present enlightened age? Aren't we doing great? Isn't it a lovely place? Did men like Peter and Paul and Augustine and Luther and Calvin and many others have something worthwhile to say to their parishioners about how to live in a sinful world and about how to solve problems? How is it that the Bible gives Jesus the name Wonderful Counselor? Was David mistaken when he said in Psalm 119.24, Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. I wrote a paper on this subject for a history of psychology course many years ago titled Psychology from the Standpoint of a Skeptic. And I remember my professor, who I didn't know very well, saw me in the hall a few days later and he just pointed at me and he said, I need to see you in my office. And uh, I I thought, I'm in trouble. (laughs) And so I went and uh, he... uh, He started by telling me he had given my paper to the other professors in the department. And I thought that doesn't bode well (laughs) since I was a psychology major. Um, And he handed me the paper and it had an A marked on it. He said, you're exactly right. We have nothing but voodoo. A very candid statement. The question of our day, has God revealed himself fully in the scriptures? If you believe the scriptures are the inerrant, full revelation of God, of God's will to man, then you'll submit to them whether you like what they tell you or not. And frankly, a lot of times I don't like what they tell me because they tell me the truth about me. And I don't like that. I like, a, I like a, an alternative reality, as we like to talk about today. I like a fiction about me. And then they tell me to do hard things, impossible things, like rejoicing in tribulation, like turning the other cheek, like blessing those who curse you, like not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, and it doesn't stop there, but a blessing instead? You mean I'm supposed to actually do that? Yep. I don't like that. Too bad. You're a follower of Jesus. You denied yourself when you started this project. 
And you're following him now, not you. You were the problem. If you believe in some lesser view of the Scriptures, then you will bring them into submission to your reason and will accept what you like and reject what doesn't please you. The Bible is the very word of the living God. It is written in the style of the individual writers who, through the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, were kept free from all error. And by God's providential direction, he produced literature that communicated what he wanted to say through these men. The text says that all Scripture is God-breathed. God-expired, breathed out, either uh, rather than inspired or breathed in. This is the first time this word is used in any Greek literature. Paul apparently coined the term. It isn't the inspiration we talk about when we see a painter, uh, when we speak of a painter being inspired by a sunset to paint, and paints a picture. Rather, this is God's expired word. Thus, the counsel of this book is not even remotely, not even remotely like any other book. The word of God makes exclusive claims. And when we dilute the Word of God with the speculations of men, we weaken the power of the Gospel witness. Because it is God's Word, it has the following characteristics. It is infallible. That is, not misleading. Nor is it being misled. It is safe. It is reliable. You can bank on it. Second, it is inerrant. That it is free from all falsehood or mistake. It is entirely true and trustworthy in all of its assertions. Number three, it is authoritative. Due to the fact that the Scriptures are God-expired, infallible, and inerrant, they are therefore authoritative and binding on all men in all times, in all places, in all circumstances. Isaiah 8.20, If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they do not have light. Note, all views of authority ultimately rest on faith, including scientific faith, a lot of it, blind faith. Our text says all Scripture. This has primary reference, interesting, as as Paul's writing this to Timothy, he's writing about the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been put together yet. Still being written in some cases. One verse destroys the dispensational scheme. Romans 15.4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Paul taught New Testament believers that every single Old Testament writing was profitable for their present instruction in righteousness. Not one bit of the Old Testament has become ethically irrelevant, according to Paul. We should should speak then concerning our moral viewpoint, not as New Testament ethics, but as biblical ethics. That is, that's the standard of behavior. 2 Timothy 3.16 requires that we take the Old Testament as ethically normative for today. Not just selected portions of the Old Testament, but every scripture. Now just a note. Certainly, future revelation. The New Testament, 
address certain things that change, but only the New Testament, only the Bible itself has the authority to do that. So once Jesus was sacrificed, once uh, he had done his work, there was no longer a need for the priesthood or the temple or animal sacrifices, and that's made clear from Scripture itself. So now, instead of the shadow, we have the substance. Because Jesus is the temple, and Jesus is the high priest, and Jesus is the sacrifice. Ethically, nothing changes there. So failure to honor the whole duty of man as revealed in the Old Testament is nothing short of failure to be completely equipped for righteous living. Jesus said in Matthew 5.19, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them. which What's he talking about? The Old Testament. He shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Biblical law? Perish the thought. Not God's law ruling over men. Certainly man has a right to his own opinion and the right to be self-governed. We can't expect men to submit to the God of the Old Testament. That's, that's unreasonable. And Paul tells Timothy and us, no matter what the culture around you believes or is doing, you continue to uphold the righteous standard of God's Word. You see, the entire Bible is our ethical yardstick. Every part of it is the eternal, unchanging Word of God. None of the Bible offers fallible or mistaken directions for us today. Not one of God's stipulations is unjust. Being too lenient or too harsh. Is there any part of the Bible you're embarrassed about? Get over it. Deny yourself and say, you know what, I don't know if I like, I don't understand that. I don't like that. That seems, well, you're right, it seems that way, but... You probably need to study it a little more. Because one thing's right. God's right and I'm wrong. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. They're as far apart as the heavens are from the earth. And it's my job as a follower of Jesus Christ for my thoughts and ways to conform to his, not the other way around. God does not unjustly have a double standard. Well, I think we'll wrap up here. Let me just give a couple of quotes. One from Calvin. When the Lord testifies that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, and that until heaven and earth pass away, not a jot will pass away from the law, he sufficiently confirms that by his coming, that is, Jesus' coming, nothing is going to be taken from the observance of the law. Therefore, through Christ, the teaching of the law remains inviolable. By teaching, admonishing, reproving, and correcting, it forms us and prepares us for every good work. Not most good works. It doesn't just help us out in some little narrow area of our life, and then we have to go to other sources to be helped in those other areas. No, for every good work, for everything, it's sufficient for everything. It is the foundation for everything. Do we learn from other things in the world? Of course we do. But every bit of it is filtered through the Word first. B.B. Warfield said, It is asserted 
with an emphasis which could not be made stronger that the law in its smallest details, every jot and tittle, every dotted I, remains in undiminished authority as long as the world lasts. That's the standard. Again, let's, we'll stop here. We'll continue next week with this emphasis upon the centrality, authority, sufficiency of Scripture. Let's pray. O Lord, we are a people of your word, and we are committed to follow enthusiastically and joyfully as we receive it and meditate on it and abide in it, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass. And all the glory of man is the flower of of the grass. The grass withers and, and the flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. We remember the words of our Lord. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Amen. Well, I offered some criticism last week of N.T. Wright, but today I would like to uh, offer up some excellent words from him as we come to the table and some application of how the word and sacrament go together. So let me just read uh, from an essay that he wrote on this sacramental time and space. Certain actions are like words. They say something. Sometimes even more than words say. For instance, a handshake or a kiss is a physical act that communicates all sorts of things that would be quite hard to put into words. Actually, the most important things in life are routinely difficult to put into words. That's why we have poets and playwrights to explore and to help us probe the borders of language and to make new connections and create new metaphorical possibilities. Because if you have a wonderful experience, seeing a sunset, falling in love, hearing a symphony, whatever it is, you very quickly run out of adjectives to describe to somebody else what happened. That's how it is with a great many things in life. Words alone make us feel poverty-stricken. But when we can actually do something with our bodies that enables us to say, this is what it's all about, the result is something far more profound than words. Sacraments are like that. They are actions that speak, that communicate beyond words. Post-Enlightenment rationalism still infects Christianity to the point where we think that reality is an intellectual formula with which we can tie everything up. We think that reality lies in words when, in fact, the New Testament shows us that it works the other way. The Word became flesh. The point I'm making is that all Christian work in the world is a spiritual battle. It is not just a matter of fighting for people's souls and then moving on to to implement pragmatic policies to sort out their bodies later. No, the powers that rule the world are still powerful and need to be reminded of their defeat by Christ on the cross. And it is only as we are energized as baptized people 
and equipped as Eucharistic people that we are able to go calmly and confidently into the arena of the struggle, whatever it may be. It's because we are, as it were, new Exodus people through the sacramental life of the church that we are enabled to do those things, not, of course, at the exclusion of prayer and scripture. The second point I want to make is about the word and sacrament. The sacraments not only do not displace the word, but the higher a sacramental theology you have, the more you need a high theology of the word to flesh it out. The precise point of the sacraments is that these are the moments when the story comes to life. If you simply took some water and without a word splashed it over someone, young or old, if you simply broke some bread and poured out some wine without a word, those actions could mean any of a number of things. From the very beginning, the word and the sacrament, the teaching and the meal, together with prayer and fellowship, go with one another, reinforce one another, and energize one another. Amen. We are humbled by our ignorance and the audacity of our sinful pride. There is nothing man is more apt to be proud of, for knowledge puffs up, and yet our greatest knowledge is but vanity. We have infinitely more ignorance than we do knowledge. Let us therefore remember in all of our thoughts of you, O God, that you are God, and we are men, and therefore we ought to be humble. And as we weak creatures, as, as we creatures, we should lie low before you. We acknowledge that whatever true knowledge we possess, we first received it by, by the revelation of your knowledge, and that only as we have come to think your thoughts after you do we obtain any knowledge at all. Thy word is truth. Father, your omniscience is of great comfort to us. In this age wherein you have placed us, for all the evil conspiracies of men are known by you. No adversary escapes your notice. You cannot be deceived by the craftiest men or the most closely guarded secret. Because you know all, you are fit to be our only object of trust. Because you see the secret places, so too you hear our secret prayers, regard our secret sighs, and bless our secret service. You know our sins, you know our frame, you know our needs, but praise you, Father, you also know the righteousness of the Son and the value of his sufferings in our, on our behalf. You understand better than we do what we have committed, and you also understand better than we do what our Savior has merited for us. Without your omniscience, O Lord, the whole world would be mere chaos and confusion. Replace now our ignorance with the knowledge of your word. We praise your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen.